The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hello, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me today on Psych Up Live. Today we're going to speak about eating disorders. According to the National Eating Disorder Association's statistics, up to 70 million people worldwide suffer from an eating disorder. In this show, Dr. Tom Wooldridge, psychologist and psychoanalyst, will address the underlying dynamics and treatment of eating disorders. Tom Wooldridge is a returning guest to Psych Up Live. He was here about a year ago and did a very important show on his groundbreaking book, Understanding Anorexia in Males. Today, he'll be drawing upon his new edited book, Psychoanalytic Treatment of Eating Disorders, When Words Fail and Bodies Speak. What he will share today is as important for those suffering from an eating disorder as their families, parents, spouses, and clinicians working with them. There's no doubt that eating disorders are dangerous, and rapid symptom relief is crucial, as is medical consult, family education. But today, in addition to those, we're going to recognize and focus on what is so difficult to address and what often goes unvoiced by those suffering, and why those suffering with eating disorders often have ambivalence about giving them up. There's a very evocative quote by Kafka that one of the authors of the chapters gives us. It reads, I'm in chains, don't touch those chains. Tom Wooldridge is the chair in the Department of Psychology at Golden Gate University. He's the executive director at the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders. His private practice is in Berkeley, California. Dr. Tom Wooldridge, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Happy to be here, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Let's start for our listeners by defining eating disorders. What do we mean, Tom? Yeah, well, I think eating disorders are best thought of as um, different ways of, of, of labeling clusters of symptoms. So, for example, an eating disorder like anorexia nervosa is a way of, of um, a shorthand for a cluster of symptoms that include, um, you know, maintaining low body weight, restricting caloric intake, um, an overvaluation of a thin body ideal. Um, binge eating disorder is a, a label for an eating disorder that has symptoms such as, you know, consuming so much food that you feel physically uncomfortable, an experience of loss of control when that happens. 
Um, and that's really, uh, you know, the most superficial way of talking about these problems. This book, um, Psychoanalytic Treatment of Eating Disorders, is really about looking beneath the symptoms. Can we find ways to talk about, to understand, to describe the psychological processes that are beneath the labels, that are beneath the symptoms? Mm-hmm. Now, the subtitle of your book is When Words Fail and Bodies Speak. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, it means that, in my view, and I think this would be the psychoanalytic view more generally, people develop symptoms, and in this case, physical symptoms, the symptoms of eating disorders, as a way of expressing emotional pain. And they haven't been able to find words to express that emotional pain. And so it finds expression through um, physicality or through action. So instead of being able to talk about, you know, the pain that I'm feeling, I restrict what I'm eating. Um, You know, for example, a patient might feel um, terrible shame about their body, uh, immense self-hatred about the way they look, a real fear of being rejected by their peer group um, for not being, you know, good enough or attractive enough or lovable enough. Um, But instead of being able to put those complex, often ambiguous, confusing feelings into words, they find a sort of um, temporary solution or uh, a way of, of sort of expressing those feelings without fully um, acknowledging them, which involves, say, in this example, um, you know, dieting all the time or, um, you know, losing so much weight that um, that's really all you can think about. Mm-hmm. So now you recommend an integrative approach to eating disorders and Anyone who reads any of your material knows that was true in your other book also. So you're you're supportive of CBT, that's cognitive behavioral therapy, nutritional support, educational modalities, art, etc. But in this book, you're saying psychodynamic, a psychodynamic perspective, a psychoanalytic perspective addresses what you just referred to, the inability to put words to, or the continual expression of pain by starving the body or some manifestation of an eating disorder. Now, the question I would ask is, why is a psychodynamic, a psychoanalytic approach suited to do that? What is it going to do that these other modalities may not do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's a great question. Um, so you're absolutely right that I, I fully support an integrative approach. I think that eating disorders are um, so difficult to treat that they get so entrenched in patients' behaviors and emotional lives. Um, you know, no treatment is uh, universally successful. We really need all the help we can get. So my view as a clinician is whatever works for this patient is, is you know, to be valued and to be um, assimilated into their treatment. I think that, um, you know, you mentioned several different modalities that are out there. Those would be things like cognitive behavioral therapy, 
family-based treatments, group treatments, um, and then, of course, you know, we always want to be working with medical providers, psychiatrists, nutritionists, family doctors. All of that is, is so important. I really think the strengths of the psychoanalytic approach, though, are the depth and complexity that they offer in thinking about what's really going on with a particular patient. So, you know, in my view, something like CBT may have very useful interventions that could really be transformative for a particular patient. What something like CBT or family therapy lacks is a way of thinking about why this particular patient has developed the particular set of symptoms that they've developed at this moment in time. Why is, you know, say, John starving himself, whereas, you know, Susie is, um, you know, bulimic? Yes. What is it? Maybe I could add a little more and say, what is it about their particular course of development growing up through time that led them to this particular kind of problem? And part of what is going to happen with a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic approach, and and please expand on what I'm going to say, the caricature people think of with a psychoanalytic approach is that the therapist or the analyst makes a brilliant interpretation and the person lives happily ever after. But those of us working from this approach know that Basic to what you just talked about, how did this story unfold? Why, what has happened that this person can't talk about? What's really central to that, Tom, is the relationship that you forge with one of these people, one of these young people, or one of these people suffering. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is um, an aspect of psychoanalytic or psychodynamic therapy that is certainly shared by other therapies, but is is particularly emphasized in the psychodynamic approach, that it really is the relationship between the therapist and the patient that provides the, the um, maybe I want to say, laboratory, the foundation for new things to happen, for, for the patient to take risks with new behaviors, new feelings, saying new things, it's, it's, you know, without that relationship as a foundation, it's, it's very hard to feel the support you need to risk um, growing, to risk change, which can often be quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that you described in, in, in the chapter, you wrote two chapters um, in this book, as you said, one day a young woman came into your office, a patient, she's very, very thin, and you, 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 you write, so, all my thought was that something terrible had happened, uh, and uh-huh. your belief is that the body is a canvas on which, at times, catastrophe is rendered. Now, with a youngster like that, what happened in the back and forth overall that made it possible for you to help this young lady? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that patient in, in that chapter, I, I call her Sarah. Um, you know, it has been a, it's been a long road for Sarah. She's been in treatment for a number of years and, you know, over those years has achieved progress, you know, 
all along the way, but it's been difficult and at times frustrating and slow, but it's also been, um, you know, steady. She's in a much different place than she was a few years ago. And at different stages of treatment, you could see different aspects of that original catastrophe. So mm-hmm. as an example, you know, at, at, at one point, what really came to the fore was a, a real terror of feeling abandoned by people that she um, was attached to were people that she cared about. You know, she worried very deeply that her parents would abandon her, that her parents would, um, you know, kick her out sort of metaphorically of, of the house, that they would disown her in some way. And it's not so much that she really thought, you know, concretely they're going to, you know, kick her out onto the street and that she would be homeless. It was, it was much more of an emotional experience that in, in moments she really needed her mother or her father, they would sort of emotionally cut her off. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, and, and that's important, I mean, it's, it's sort of impossible for us to fully know what really happened as she grew up, but she had this experience of being abandoned over and over again. And that became so anxiety-provoking for her that she found ways to cope. And one of the ways she found to cope was to you know, starve herself, to assert more and more control over her body, to become so preoccupied with her body that she really didn't have sort of the mental space left to worry about anything else. So when she first came in, you know, she was really only in touch with the fact that, you know, I don't want to get fat, I don't want to eat. But over time, that preoccupation broadened to include a wider range of concerns. One of the things that you say and that fits with this young lady is we talk about the therapy helping the person find a connection so they can bear what they what they feel is unbearable. And when they, mm-hmm. the problem with, with eating disorders, I guess you would say, Tom, is it's a fix. That is, if she fills all the space in her mind with, am I the right weight? Did I eat too many calories? How, how much do I weigh? Should I throw up? Whatever it happens to be. There is no room to feel anxiety about anything else. It kind of is a very expensive, emotionally expensive anxiety regulator. That's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, we could think about, um, as an analogy, um, say, alcoholism or any kind of addiction, really. If I'm having, you know, say, a lot of conflict in my marriage, And, you know, I'm anxious about going home and sort of working it out day after day. And instead, I start to go to the bar and have a couple of beers after work. You know, that's a it's a short term solution. It's a way of of sort of medicating myself, filling up my mental space that gives me short term relief, but doesn't really address the root of the problem. Eating Mm -hmm. disorders are a lot like that. You know, I find on a given day, you know, say I feel really insecure about my body and how I look and and whether my peers will accept me. I find on a given day that if I, you know, skip lunch or skip breakfast, I feel a little less self-conscious and a little less ashamed of myself. And, you know, that continues day after day after day and the pattern becomes more and more entrenched and more and more difficult to break. And eventually I've Um, you know, lost touch with the original problem that got me into this whole mess. Mm. It also then starts to make sense where we get into a bind where 
a young person or an adult gets dangerously thin, uh, which is medically dangerous, and yet at the same time they do not want to give up what is their main anxiety regulator. So it, it becomes right. it becomes a real dilemma with with treatment. Um, so in some ways, from a psychodynamic point of view, are you trying to invite the person to use other ways to regulate this anxiety or to find the words to what it is they're suffering from? That's right. I think, um, you know, as, as a person starts to find the words to bring their, say, original anxieties or original traumas or original challenges more and more out into the open, then the challenge for both the therapist and the patient is to collaboratively find healthier, more adaptive, more growth-promoting ways to manage those anxieties, to manage those traumas. And that's not something, you know, you talked about the caricature of psychoanalytic therapy of providing a brilliant interpretation and then things are sort of fixed once and for all. It's not like that at all. It's, It's... it's much more about, you know, a process that occurs over time of finding a few words, feeling the impact of that new understanding and finding, developing um, capacities, new capacities to manage the feelings that that new understanding brings up. And then, you know, repeating that process. And, and over time, you know, the personality, the person grows. That's what emotional growth is all about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the things, I'm going to be taking a break, but one of the things that I know you write about is that with someone suffering from an eating disorder, often, and please correct me, underneath some of the pain that they suffer from, but they don't quite have the words for, are feelings of shame or difficulty or fear of intimacy, getting too close, a fear they're going to be intruded upon, a capacity to play. So I'm wondering, and and the thought that I'm hoping we can come back with is, if I have two children and I raise them both, why is it that one of them has an eating disorder and the other doesn't? I'm the same mom to both. And what what did I do wrong? Or what could have I what could I have done that would be better? So let's think about how it is that someone gets to the point where they're so uncomfortable with intimacy or they're so hard on themselves, Tom, that they develop an eating disorder, but their sibling doesn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Do you, are we taking that up now or are we taking a break? Uh, I can um, certainly give you an answer. Yeah, just start us off and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop you for the break. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, um, I think it's a complicated question. Um, but, you know, you've described a situation, say, where we've got, you know, two parents and two siblings. Um, I think the first thing to recognize is that even though both children grew up with the same parents, their um, experiences growing up could have been remarkably different. And, and those differences can stem from things like you know, gender, um, you know, biology, what sort of genetic loading did each child come into the world with? What were their experiences in utero and and birth like? Um, You know, what places were the parents in at different times? 
as Oops. each child grew up, what um, preconceptions or expectations did the parents have for each of the children? So, you know, for example, um, I, you know, if I have a boy and a girl, my expectations, projections, um, worries, anxieties about the girl and the boy may be quite different depending on what my experiences with different genders have been. I'm going to stop you there, Tom. Uh, Okay. So let's stop right at the gender piece and we'll come right back. Uh, We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Tom Wooldridge. He's the author of the new book, Psychoanalytic Treatment of Eating Disorders, When Words Fail and Bodies Speak. He's also the author of Understanding Anorexia in Males. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories, too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In fitness and health, we all deserve a second chance. Join host Michael Skog for the program, You Only Stronger. You always have the ability to start fresh, even if you slip up on your diet or fitness program. Even small steps taken throughout the day can help. Each show will conclude with weekly assignments that you can use and we'll want to hear your feedback. You Only Stronger airs live Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. 
Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Tom Woldridge about eating disorders. And we had just raised the question of a family with two children um, and one has an eating disorder and the other doesn't. And how can this be if they were raised by the same parents? Tom, you were talking about possible gender implications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you, you know, you had asked this question of how two children in the same family can turn out so differently, one struggling with an eating disorder and the other not. Um, and, and, and gender was certainly one difference that can make an important difference. Um, you know, so, so for example, there are often um, expectations in families and in, certainly in the society at large um, around thinness and beauty for women that are not as present or not present at all for young boys. Um, and, and certainly those kinds of pressures can make an important difference. Um, but, you know, I also want to say in, in this discussion that um, the thing about eating disorders, I, I, I've seen many kids in my practice who, you know, certainly I wasn't there in their families as they grew up, but my impression from talking to them over, you know, a period of years is that in many, if not most ways, their parents did an excellent job. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly more than just parents that are implicated in, in what happens for children. There are also um, pressures from friends, from coaches, from the society at large, which has become, you know, just downright pathological in the kinds of um, beauty ideals that are held up for us to achieve. And, and then there's the fact that um, eating disorders, um, just to use this term loosely, have an addictive quality. You know, once you start to engage with disordered eating and it starts to, you know, seem to solve the problem that you're struggling with, as you use it more and more, it starts to become the solution for more and more problems. It's, it's sort of like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, you know, it, it's quite a self-reinforcing um, situation that, um, takes on a life of its own, I guess we could say. Mm. Well, certainly there are the other pressures. I mean, I remember from your other book and even in this book, and it's been my experience with talking to people that very often for a, for a young man, if he wants to be a wrestler or he's on a certain team for which there has to be a weight reduction or weighing in, that could be mm-hmm. the start of the slide down. Because and right. for this and and you wonder why it's one kid and not another. Everybody's. I uh, remember a million years ago, I was once dating a wrestler, and for a week, this kid would just eat oranges. And now I don't yeah. know if he. I, I don't know what ever happened to him. I don't know if he ever developed an eating disorder. But why can five kids drink and one of them not put down the drink and become alcoholic? So I like what you're saying because sometimes there's a predisposition. We just don't exactly know, but we do know for someone it's become addictive in some way the uh, and the, I, th- I think the other thing is and you many of your authors are talking about the cultural norms and it's almost unbearable the amount of um, pop-ins and endless um, visualizations that any young woman or man would have to face when they see these beautiful people who have been airbrushed and who knows what else, 
presented as the cultural norm of beauty, success, and happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's very compelling. I mean, I think, you know, we are tremendously, uh, far more than most of us realize, um, susceptible to the images, the narratives that um, we swim in in our, in our larger culture. And, and, you know, they're, they're tremendously compelling. I mean, who doesn't want what they seem to offer, you know, at least in a, in a superficial way? Who doesn't want to feel, you know, um, beautiful and successful and perfect and desirable? Um, those ideas are quite seductive. Mm. In, now, it's interesting. I want our listeners to know there's 15 chapters in this book, and each given by two of them are by Tom, and, and the others are real experts with different perspectives. One of them, Diane Barth, she really takes on the issue of, as the therapist, the cyber world, the cyber friends, and the in-flesh friends with her patients because she says, if I don't show that I'm willing to go online and understand the difference between a cyber friendship and a real friendship, the young person I'm working with is not going to know that I understand that you really can have a million friends and you've never seen them. But if you keep watching and looking at their Facebook pages and believing they have a much better life than you, that is going to have an impact on you binging or being afraid to go out with real friends. Um, do you think that that she, her perspective is don't miss how the children are being reinforced to keep the eating disorder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Diane's chapter is, is, is a fantastic contribution. This is an issue that fortunately is starting to receive the attention that it deserves. Um, it, it really has become undeniable as we see more and more, especially, you know, adolescent patients um, who are just immersed in these online worlds, whether it's, you know, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and I'm sure that there are a million others that I, you know, since I'm older, I don't know the names of them off the top of my head, but, you know, that where, where people really um, are, you know, connecting, in, in quotes, with, um, with peers, people they know in person and people they don't, and these people take on a tremendous importance. Um, in their inner lives. They hold enormous emotional power to, mm-hmm. you know, accept or reject, to prove or disprove, to, you know, like or, or, or I guess not like or not respond um, to what young people are putting out there. And that applies, um, you know, tremendously in, in this whole arena of um, bodily appearance, um, you know, thinness, um, beauty, and, um, and, and it's something that our patients struggle with, and, and we do them a tremendous disservice if we don't make it a topic of, of conversation in their therapy. Mm-hmm. Now, another one of your authors, uh, Brisman, offers a different perspective, and I think that the listeners might find this important and interesting. When I do work with trauma, I'm often wondering if the person suffering from what they could not know as a child, something that would have been too much for sanity or for safety for them to know. What she wonders is if the children or the anyone with an eating disorder is suffering 
because they can't connect with parts of them that were not allowed, Tom. She uses, uh-huh. oh, when we work with someone, maybe part of it is we have to help them re- regain what was not allowed. Do you find that an important theme? I, I do, and it's it's related, um, I think, to this subtitle we discussed earlier, um, When Words Fail and Bodies Speak. The idea that an eating disorder may be uh, an expression of a part of the self that couldn't be owned, that couldn't be integrated, I guess we could say, um, because the environment that the person, you know, found themselves in um, would have would have um, reacted negatively in some way, and and so they were avoiding shame. You know, I can't inhabit, I can't own the part of myself, say, that has desire, that's hungry, metaphorically, um, because you know I'm in a in a family, say, where hunger is seen as um, you know indulgent or excessive or uh, not ladylike. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the eating disorder has now become a, a somatic way of, of expressing my desire, my hunger, um, without really having to own it and face the shame that it would bring up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I remember a, a young woman that I once worked with who was bu- bulimic, and that was a family where everyone, everyone was into health exercise and everything and everyone was perfect and she she hated that about the family but she felt compelled to be just like them and so mm-hmm. she she would binge and vomit and try in a in a very desperate way to fight them on some level with her body and then to adhere to the uh, the norm of the family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's very interesting right, yeah. in terms of the story that the symptoms is saying. In line with that, in Brisbane's chapter and for the clinicians listening, she suggests that you start, if the, if the young person's very into food, and she says start with the food. Start, start knowing every single thing about the food because everything else is peripheral. But then once she gets to when the binge happened, what happened after, then she invites the young person to start connecting it with other issues and other feelings. Now, is that an approach mm-hmm. you've ever used? Yeah, I think it's, 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 a, it's a useful approach because we really have to meet people where they are. And if a person's entire world is centered on, you know, food and thinness and the body, then we really do have to meet them in that world. We have to meet them where they are, and we have to trust that they're experience of that world um, is is a communication about what's happening for them at a deeper emotional level and that over time will begin to develop an intuition or start to sense into um, the sort of texture of that deeper world and, and that deeper world will start to find words of its own. Mm-hmm. For instance, sometimes <clears throat> the the per, the young person's not even aware, or or the person with an eating disorder, that it almost always happens that after they get off Facebook, they're binging, and mm-hmm. and and that there are certain unconscious kind of triggers 
or not noticed, unnoticed triggers that you as their, you know, in psychoanalytic work, we feel we're taking the journey with the person and pointing things out collaboratively. So if there's a trusting relationship, it may be the person's very curious that you and she or you and he just observed. That's when the binge happens, right? After the Facebook. Right. Right. So, you know, I was on Facebook and I happened to see, you know, several of my friends posting pictures of themselves and, you know, almost unconsciously. And and all I mean by that is sort of in the back of my mind, I felt, um, you know, inadequate and insecure about my own body, but I didn't really sort of notice that thought and, and, and give it the attention it deserves. And, you know, five minutes later, I turn the computer off, or I guess these days I turn off my smartphone and find myself, you know, binging, um, in the kitchen, you know, are the two connected? We'd want to start to ask that question with the patient. We'd want to be curious about it together. Is there a way that you're, you know, just as an example, punishing yourself by going and having a binge because you feel um, a lot of self-hatred and anger at yourself for not being as beautiful as you think your friends are? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, one of this brings us right to the online forums, and um, maybe we could define them for our listeners, the names of them, um, Pro-Anno and Pro-Mia, um, or Con, Anna's for anorexia, and Mia is mm. for bulimia, right? That's right, yeah. So, so Pro-Anorexia forums, or Pro-Mia forums, Pro-Anna forums, these are all um, online communities that um, are, are a combination of uh, image and text, discussion text-based forums, um, where, where people go, um, you know, to, to talk about their experience having an eating disorder. Um, Tom, Tom, I didn't realize our time. Let's stop right there, and we're going to come back. I want our listeners to hear, because I know you've done a lot of research with the uh, forums. We're going to take a quick break and just come right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're with Dr. Tom Wooldridge. He's our expert on eating disorders. He's the author of Psychoanalytic Treatment of Eating Disorders, When Words Fail and Bodies Speak. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? 
It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Tom Woldridge. He's our expert in eating disorders, a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. And we were talking about the online forums. Some of them are actually pro-eating disorder and some of them are book are cons, that is, how to stop it. And you've done quite a bit of research on it, Tom. If I'm a parent, should I be panicked about this? Should I encourage it? Um, what do you find with the, with the online forums? Yeah, um, so, so the pro-anorexia forums, you know, really are, for the most part, about um, providing guidelines for how to be anorexic, how to... Um, you know, lose weight, how to restrict your eating. And if you're a parent and you find out that your kids are on these forums, um, you know, I don't know that, that panic is helpful, but you should certainly be highly concerned and, and you know, reaching out for help. There, um, you know, I, 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 and I do want to just emphasize this very clearly because my article is about looking at the nuances of these forums, but I do want to emphasize that these forums are tremendously destructive. They're highly problematic. Um, a lot of what goes on them goes on on these forums is certainly not something you'd want your child involved with. And yet, you know, as a clinician, I'm I'm faced with a situation where many, many, many of our patients are involved with these forums, and especially in the beginning of our relationship, me saying, you know, stop it, is not going to be successful. Um, you know, I don't have the kind of um, relational influence to 
um, you know, tell a, a patient that, you know, you shouldn't be using these forums and for them to sort of take my word for it. So, again, mm-hmm. you have to meet people where they are. Where they are. So my article was really about looking in an in-depth way, so a qualitative analysis of, of what's going on really on these forums. And, and what I found was that, you know, for, for many, probably most adolescents, um, the primary impact of the forums is, is problematic. It provides a way for them to bolster their eating disordered self, to further engage in these problematic behaviors, to um, retreat from the world of face-to-face friendships. I did find, and this was the thing that's controversial about this chapter, is that some small subset of people who use the forums do use them, do seem to use them as a stepping ground toward recovery, um, as a way to find support, um, often without revealing their identity, without the kind of um, risk of shame that they would face in the real world. Um, they use the relationships they forge on these forums as a sort of supportive base to um, experiment with recovery. So that's part of what's happening there too. And and as the therapist, all of this has to be grist for the meal for the mill. Mm. So even as a parent, then maybe my best position would be to be curious with my youngster as to. What is it that you get from this? I mean, if they say these are the only people who understand what I'm trying to do in terms of losing weight, okay, that's one piece. But if they say someone finally knows what it's like to be trapped in this illness or someone knows that I'm embarrassed but I can't stop. So I guess, I mean, because that's what your article was sort of pointing to that just sometimes – if someone's in pain and they realize someone else is walking in those shoes too, it could make a difference. Yeah, you know, I think curiosity is is always the right place to start, which is not to say that you necessarily want to stop at curiosity, but it's always the place to start. It may mm-hmm. be that, you know, as you're curious and as you learn more, you, you see, yeah, I really need to reach out to a, a psychologist or a medical doctor or you know, some, somebody to get advice about, you know, how to be most helpful beyond being curious. But, but curiosity mm-hmm. is always the place to start. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's certainly not an easy piece, but when we think about how often everyone is living online, um, the fact that you were able to pick up that sometimes young kids find someone who makes them feel like they're not a freak is not such a bad thing. On the other hand, as you say, weighing suggestions for how to lose weight can become very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that brings us... Right. Go ahead. Uh, the, no, go ahead. That, that was all I was going to say. The, the other thing, and that brings us sort of to what we were mentioning on the break, and that is, so as a psychodynamic therapist or someone using a psychoanalytic approach, if I'm working with someone... And I'm trying to open the space for them to find the words, allow parts of themselves, whether it's shame or fear, et cetera, to come out. I have that going on, but this is a very dangerous illness. I, at the same time, have to be worried about weight. How do you manage that with your work? Yeah, I, I think that is the hardest thing about working with people with eating disorders. I think the most important thing for, you know, clinicians listening out there 
um, and, and even for parents who are looking for treatment for their kids, is that a treatment team approach is best. So you really want a therapist, you want a nutritionist, you want a physician, and, and maybe even a psychiatrist on board. Um, because different treatment providers have expertise in different things, and, and eating disorders really straddle this division between a medical problem and a psychological problem. And having these other treatment providers on board, to some degree, reduces the pressure I feel to sort of fix the problem as quickly as possible. Of course, I, I want to fix the problem as quickly as possible, but that doesn't mean that I'm, I, I, I can or that the patient can just sort of fix it in this moment. It takes, it takes time to move in a better direction. At the same time, often, you know, the situation can be medically urgent, and, and so you want, you know, several perspectives um, on the problem that you're confronting. Do you often work with a team in the sense that you are doing a psychodynamic treatment and somebody else is doing um, a nutritional program or monitoring weight? Is, is that one of the ways that you operate with this integrative approach? Yeah, I would say that is almost always the way um, I operate. I mean, certainly there's, you know, I, I certainly do work with people around nutrition and eating to some degree, but I think treatments are far more successful in my experience if there really is a, a dietitian or a nutritionist who's directly involved with the patient because that's their expertise, and that then frees me up to help the patient explore their emotional experience more deeply. Mm. Would you say that you have found a specific age range where there is more prevalence of eating disorders? Um, yeah, I mean, is, I, uh, the, the data is, is very clear that, that people tend to develop eating disorders right around, so right before or right after puberty. Um, often, I would say, um, they don't make it into treatment for, you know, a couple of years after, you know, they, they've, they've had their eating disorder for a couple of years before they seek treatment or the problem is identified. Um, it's certainly better, um, you know, the, the sooner a person seek, treat, seeks treatment, the better the prognosis. So for parents out there who, you know, think their kid may have an eating disorder, the sooner you, you get the treatment going, the better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, it is like other addictions, um, I was just speaking to someone who said that um, at some point her eating disorder had really been handled. And then when she got into a very stressful year in college, uh, there it was again, the urge to start the restriction. And smartly, she called her therapist. So like, like it, it is as if someone says, oh, I'm starting to drink again, much as we said at the beginning of the show. There's an addictive quality to this, a kind of regulation solution that if you once used it, there might be the urge to go back to it. So keeping one's eye on it seems to be a good idea. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think college is a, is a situation in which it often can become problematic again. So for kids going off to college, it's often something to be um, mindful about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um in terms of getting help for eating disorders, I certainly want you to share how people would get your books and your website. But in general, is there a way, if you live on the East Coast, you're in Berkeley, 
Um, how, what's the best step for a parent or, or an adult with an eating disorder to um, take to find help, Tom? Sure. I think, you know, there are some good places to start. Um, the National Eating Disorders Association, which is NEDA, N-E-D-A, has resources on their webpage. Um, you know, uh, any competent uh, psychologist, psychotherapist, psychoanalyst um, should be able to help you find someone who, who you know, could work with you. Um, often conversations with your family doctor can be a good place to start. Um, you know, people are also um, welcome to reach out to me through my webpage, and, and I'm, I'm happy to provide you, you know, referrals if you're on the East Coast. I think, you know, just getting the conversation started um, is, is the best place to start. And, and I want to underscore that I have contacted Tom for referrals on the East Coast, and he had them. So please think of him as a wonderful resource. Tom, how and where can we find your books, and how can we get to you? Yeah, the best the best place to find me is is my webpage. It's www. Woldridge. That's t o m w o o l d r i d g e. dot com. You can also just type my name into Google. Um, I have links to my books um, from that web page. Uh, of course, you can also find the books on you know Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, and I also have links to a number of my um, different academic papers, some of which are, are pretty accessible, especially around the whole issue of eating disorders and men and other um, minority groups. And, and, you know, of course, feel free to reach out to me if you have any thoughts or questions or concerns, and I'm, I'm happy to help in any way that I can. I hear from people all the time, and I'm, I'm happy to. It's terrific. If, can, can you give our listeners a very brief take-home message? Yeah, you know, I, I think the take-home message for me, at least around this topic, is that um, eating disorders are far more than just the surface-level symptoms, that you really do want to understand them as um, having depth and complexity and that they're expressions of uh, emotional pain. And by understanding that emotional pain more deeply, you're taking the most important step towards healing and recovery. Thank you so much. Tom, Dr. Woldridge, thank you again for the work you do in helping people understand and heal from eating disorders. Thank you for returning to Psych Up Live. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show by 6.30 p.m. Eastern and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, Sketcher. Um, please remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.